Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Fingers in the dike. Markets keep fears of a surging virus at bay with hopes of more government help. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. During times like these, with a slowing economy and some deterioration in credit conditions, even the healthiest banks tend to become more risk-averse and restrain lending, and regulators' actions have reinforced this lending restraint in the past. That was then-Secretary of the Treasury Hank Paulson back in 2008 during the last economic crisis. Now we're in another one. And this week, we got a glimpse of how the major U.S. banks are handling this one, something that we asked the Dean of U.S. Banking Regulation, Raj Cohen of Sullivan and Cromwell, about. I would say there is a definite contrast as opposed to a comparison because banks have come into this uh, economic uh, turmoil with far stronger capital ratios, far more liquidity, and they are not a uh, part of the problem in terms of having caused the problem. It's obviously a health crisis which is enveloping the economy and the banks. But uh, this is not a problem that is attributable to the banks. So the banks are in much better shape, it appears, than they were back in 2008, 2009. At the same time, their stock price might not necessarily reflect that. Why isn't the market giving them full credit for the strong shape they're in? You know, that's a fascinating question, David, and one uh, that I think a number of people in most importantly, perhaps, of which bank CEOs are struggling. I think it is a combination of uh, three factors. 
the first is the um, uh, inevitable that when the economy suffers, banks suffer because they are lending to the economy. So that is a really uh, key factor. A second factor, which may be as important but perhaps has not been as much focused on, is that banks are uh, the losers in, uh, in a very real sense in view of the Federal Reserve's monetary policy. Low interest rates are clearly a major drag on uh, bank earnings and particularly with banks being asked to uh, hold substantial liquidity, uh, treasuries and other very short-term interests, uh, they are affected even more. And I think the third is uncertainty about uh, dividends. So far, uh, banks have maintained their dividends, but the Fed has announced that it's going to do new uh, supervisory uh, stress tests with new scenarios, which will undoubtedly uh, be more severe. Uh, the Fed announced it was going to impose a new rule on maximum dividends that could be paid based on trailing 12-month um, earnings. And I think uh, the market is uncertain uh, as to whether the Federal Reserve will continue to per, to enable banks to pay dividends, even though um, dividends have represented over the last few years a very small proportion of banks' total return of capital. Most has been through repurchases. Roger, we are in the middle, obviously, of a true crisis uh, prompted by the coronavirus itself and then the aftermath, the shutting down of the economy. It's not the bank's fault, not the regulator's fault, nobody's fault. But the question is, should regulators be taking that into account as they impose regulation right now? Should we be making some adjustments or are we making adjustments already? I personally think we should. Regulation should never be static and absolute. Uh, some of the adjustments that have been made include either already or under consideration dealing with the supplementary leverage ratio. Uh, leverage has turned out in this environment to be the binding capital restraint for a number of institutions. And the concept is to recognize that, again, monetary policy and the economy have led to major holdings of uh, what are risk-free assets, such as treasuries. So there are uh, actions which the regulators are taking, uh, but it's, it's a, um, a difficult road to hoe because you uh, want to be sure that banks are not dissipating capital, but at the same time, you do not want to discourage them from lending and uh, overly aggressive regulatory actions will actually prove to be uh, pro-cyclical in that sense of creating further economic problems. That was Raj Cohen, Senior Chairman of Sullivan and Cromwell. Coming up, can we keep people safe and keep the economy going? We hear from the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. 
from Bloomberg Radio. The government has already spent more than $2 trillion in shoring up the U.S. economy, with quite possibly trillions more on the way. But if we keep having to shut down large parts of the economy because of the coronavirus, can the government ever do enough? That's the question we pose to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. You have to uh, address the coronavirus issue, as we have been saying all along. Open our economy. Do so by testing, testing, testing. If you test and you trace and you treat and you isolate, you can contain the virus, you can open the economy. The same holds true for our children going to school. They want to go to school. We want them to go to school. Their parents do. Teachers want to teach. But you can't risk their health in doing so. And in order to open the schools and the economy, there's a simple solution, testing. It's worked in other countries. Until, God willing, we have a a vaccine or a cure, testing, testing. Now, what I'm calling upon the president to do is to use his authority to execute the Defense Production Act. People are not getting tested enough because there isn't enough equipment. Those tests are not analyzed to find out if you're positive or negative because there isn't enough equipment. The schools are not prepared to open up in hospitals caring for people because they don't have enough personal protective equipment. And so we're saying just face the fact. I said about the president that he's like a man who refuses to ask for direction. There is direction. The scientists are giving it to us. But we can't safely open up unless we address the uh, coronavirus. And it is doable. We're America. We can get anything done we set our minds to do. But we have to follow the science and we have to do good governance as we follow the science. All of the experts, as you say, Madam Speaker, say we have to have testing and then we have to have the contact tracing that follows on after the testing. testing. At the same time, in some places like Florida right now, some of the experts are saying it's so far out of control, you've got to shut it down before you can really even test because there's just too much going on. What can the federal government, what can Congress, what can the president do to try to get people to stay home in some of these places where they need to stay home? You and I both know that. Well, it is. it, it has worked in other countries. Uh, the shelter in place, the lockdown makes a big, big difference. Uh, but the president, you know, it's even hard to get him to wear a mask as a good example. But it would make all the difference in the world, and really in not a very long time, if the president would suggest uh, and not stand in the way of sheltering in place. Uh, the lockdown is very important. In California, we uh, lockdown had great improvement, everything good. Our governor just uh, been excellent, Governor Gavin Newsom. And then some of the regions of the state, the big state, were re- objecting, saying, we don't have so much here, let us open up. And so there was some local discretion, which now has uh, demonstrated that that discretion has led to more cases, unfortunately. Madam Speaker, you raised the question of the schools, which I think is on so many Americans' minds across the country right now as we approach September once again, how we can get our kids back to school in some form, maybe a hybrid form, safely. At the same time, that's going to take a lot of money as a practical matter. That is. We're going to have to reconfigure a lot of schools. Where is that money going to come from? Mitch McConnell says he actually might be willing to put up some money for that. Can you come to terms on that at least? Well, in the HEROES Act, uh, we have $100 billion dollars education stabilization fund specifically for the coronavirus. Much of it for elementary, for K through 12, and then some of it for higher education. Because if you're going to go to school, and again, we want people, 
the, all the testing, tracing, et cetera, but you have to have the, the, the distancing. And if you're going to be distant six feet apart, which you must, then you need more teach. You need more space. You need more teachers. Then you need attention to the ventilation system uh, in the in the schools, as well as uh, testing for not only teachers but custodians and others. And so, instead of the president threatening to withhold money from schools that don't open, he should be granting money to schools so that they can open. Our federal share of of education is very small, less than. 10 8 point something percent, less than 10 percent. Most of that money is funded by state and local government, and that's why we have in the HEROES Act the state and local government honor our heroes almost a trillion dollars so that state and local government can uh, recover from the, the outlays that they have made for the coronavirus to address it, as well as the revenue lost because of the coronavirus. So all of that, state and locals, where over 90 percent of our education funds uh, come from. So again, it's a lot of money, but it's, it's a small price to pay for the lives and livelihood of our children and the uh, need for them to go back to school in a very safe way. There is a path. As for directions, Mr. President, uh, the scientists can give you some good guidance in this regard. But in the HEROES Act, we anticipate that this was two months ago. Two months ago, we passed the HEROES Act with all of those provisions in it about testing, about supporting state and local government, about uh, the state sa the education stabilization fund, and other provisions as well. Uh, and then since that time, 50,000 more people have died. Uh, many, many more people have become infected. So many more people have become unemployed. As you say, Madam Speaker, it's been two months now since the House passed the HEROES Act bill, and that is sort of the fourth wave of the stimulus. We haven't had any response out of the Senate really effectively. We hear Mitch McConnell say he's going to come forward with something next week. What is it going to take to get the two sides together to get something done? Because you have the school situation coming up soon. You also have unemployment insurance, which we're really coming up with in another couple of weeks. Another couple of weeks that will expire. I have no doubt that they will come around. At the beginning, he said, no, we spent enough money. Now they're at $1.3 trillion. That's not enough. Uh, we have $3.4 trillion. As you know, the Fed has spent a good deal of money making sure the stock market is okay, one way or another, trillions of dollars, actually. And we think if we can bolster the stock market that way, we can, and, and it's a good thing, it's a good thing uh, that we should be able to bolster uh, the middle class, our working families, uh, and again, especially when it comes to spending money on education. You know, education brings more money to the Treasury than any other dollar that you can spend. And a great deal of what we have in the HEROES Act is absolutely essential, like direct payments to people, unemployment insurance and the rest, because if we don't do that, the recession will only get worse. The virus will even spread further. And the just the unhappiness, the suffering of the American people will intensify. We can get this done. The scientists have shown us the way. We need the equipment to do it. That was Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Coming up, he set the standard for running a major industrial company through the last economic downturn, and Honeywell came out the other side stronger than it went in. The CEO who got it there, Dave Cody, is here with his leadership playbook through good times and bad. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. 
That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Major industrial companies face a set of challenges in this COVID-19 world. But Dave Cody had his own set of problems after he took over Honeywell and then faced the great financial crisis of 2008-2009. And he showed how you overcome those problems. And he's written about it in his new book, Winning Now, Winning Later. This recession is a little different than, uh, say, others in the past because of the health issue. So that, of course, has to come first. Uh, That being said, all recessions are the same in that uh, they're all painful and unpleasant. They just are. And that's why I used to say that's why they call it a recession and they don't call it a party. That being said, there's uh, things that I think are important to think about in any recession if you're a leader. The first one is not to panic. And it's a very easy thing to do when everybody around you, no offense, but the media people that you work with uh, are all panicking over it, uh, talking about it. Don't panic yourself. Try to keep a a level head. Second one, be able to still think independently. And I'm fond of saying that the ability to think independently is a lot more rare than being smart. And there's a lot of smart people who can tell you why things are the way they are, but focus on looking at it and making an independent decision. The third one, don't forget about your customer. Because when it comes to both surviving the short term and the long term, customers will remember. So make sure you stay focused on them. The fourth one would be even in the middle of a recession, be thinking about planning for recovery, including all those long term projects that you had going that were going to support support customers. Now, it's easier said than done. As I'm fond of saying, when you're up to your button alligators, it's tough to remember the original goal was to drain the swamp. That being said, the swamp is still there and it's still going to be there when you go into the recovery. So as a leader, even if you've got 120 hours worth of work and 80 hours to do it, you have to find a way to take an hour or two to get your head above the fray, look around and make sure you're still doing the right things to position yourself for recovery. Uh, so, so, Dave, let me pick up on, on one of those particularly, uh, and that is remember your customer, focus on your customer, because even as big industrial companies right now are having their own problems, their customers are having problems as well. You tell a great story in your book about having been told that you were on good terms with one of the Honeywell customers, and then when you actually asked them, you found out they were about to sue you. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a shock. Uh, I was very big on uh, doing a great job on customer service, and we improved a lot, and we still have a ways to go. It's, it's one of those things you're never done with. 
But I've been assured by all the businesses that uh, we were doing better and everything was fine. And we were at the uh, one of the air shows and we went to visit a customer because I always like to hear it directly. And it was me, the business president, uh, the sales manager, and the product manager. And the question that I always would start with any customer was, and I was there to talk about some new stuff, but I always start with, so how are we doing with uh, what, what you've already given us? And the customer looked at me and said, well, I'm glad you stopped by because we've just about finalized the lawsuit that we're planning on filing against you. And it should be done in about two weeks. And we just wanted you to know. And I, I was incredulous. I looked at the business president, the product manager, the sales manager. None of them were aware of this. And then I just started to do the kind of thing with uh, the customer say, please give me some time and let me figure this thing out so that uh, I make sure we perform. Well, uh, thank God we were able to perform, hold on to the customer, avoid the lawsuit. But it sure pointed out how important it is, whether it's good times or tough times, stay close to your customer, make sure they're happy. So, so Dave, one of the questions right now that's really prevalent given what's going on, not just with the pandemic, but with China and trade with China, are supply lines. Supply lines seem to be getting reconfigured. You had an awful lot of business, for example, in China that you really developed over there in China at Honeywell. What do you think about the situation with supply lines right now? Are we going to fundamentally change those? Are we going to be much less dependent, for example, on China going forward? Well, I'd say there's uh, an important issue that needs to be addressed. And we have to be careful that this doesn't turn into this xenophobic uh, impulse in every country everywhere. And that'll be extremely damaging. Uh, What we have learned about supply uh, chains is that they were more fragile than we ever expected. Totally independent of China, just overall more fragile. If you have a single source of supply, whether it's an internal or external component, there's only one country it comes out of, and that country has an issue, you have a fragile supply line. So there's a revisit that's going to have to go uh, for everybody's supply chain to say, is it can I make it more robust so in the event of any kind of disaster, pandemic or otherwise, I have an alternate source of supply and I can recover? The thing that worries me is that that legitimate issue can be pushed into everything has to be done domestically. Whatever country you're in, you have to be able to do it there. That would be a mistake because we don't then take advantage of each other's country's strengths and, uh, and weaknesses. That was Dave Cody, executive chairman of Vertiv Holdings and former CEO of Honeywell. Coming up, our virtual roundtable with special contributor Larry Summers and Catherine Baker of the University of Chicago as we sort out how to manage a public health crisis and an economic crisis at the same time. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It's time now for our virtual roundtable in this new coronavirus world. And we welcome today both Larry Summers, our very special contributor for Wall Street Week of Harvard, of course, and also Catherine Baker, who is the dean of the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. So, Catherine, thank you for joining us here on Wall Street Week. I want to take advantage of your expertise in healthcare. It's such a big issue right now. As we look at places like Southern Florida, as Texas, even California, is this thing out of control? I worry that it is. And the spike that we're seeing in cases really interferes with our ability to resume economic activity as well as posing a potentially tragic health consequence. 
So, Larry, in fairness to you, you've been warned about this since the very beginning of Wall Street Week, pretty much, saying this is worse than we think, and we got to really clamp down on it. Is there anything at this point we can do to get control of it again? Look, uh, David, this was predictable and predicted. We were running with uh, R0, a contagion factor of two and a half in normal times. When we did lockdown, we brought it down to perhaps 0.8. That meant we could only bring it a very small part of the way back without having the virus explode unless we had a comprehensive testing, contact tracing, and masking regime. We had none of those things because of a generalized abdication of public responsibility. And this is not actually rocket science. If we test enough people, if, enough, if people are careful enough about masking, if we contact trace after we test, after we brought the thing down to a small scale, small scale whack-a-mole works, large scale whack-a-mole doesn't. It's not a question of science. It's a question of political will. But I'd, I'd be interested in getting Catherine's view on something that I haven't quite been able to figure out looking at the press which is out of control is a kind of general set of words. But if you had to say, Catherine, if a place like Germany, things are under control, call that a one. And New York City in April, um, where the whole thing was completely exploding, call that a hundred. Where is it you think uh, Texas, Florida and California are and Where do you think it will peak there? Are we looking at a reprise of New York or are we looking at something terrible but not that terrible? I certainly hope that it won't be that terrible. And there are a few things that weigh potentially on the side of it being a little less out of control. And that's that we know a bit better about how the disease spreads. We have some treatment options available that have been developed through understanding what's worked in the past and what hasn't. We don't have the magic bullet that we're hoping for yet. We don't have a vaccine, but I think that the physician and healthcare provider workforce knows a bit better how to manage the conditions to keep people out of ICUs. And we know how important it is to be wearing masks, to be keeping physical distance, to be lowering density. So it does not need to be as bad as New York. The question of whether it will be or not depends on the political will that you've identified and that the public's ability to comply with best practices consistently. And you raised a really key point that keeping the levels lower is really important, not just to prevent unnecessary deaths and sickness, but also because it opens up tools we wouldn't otherwise have. You can't do contact tracing when disease is spreading like wildfire, but when the numbers are lower, then you can actually do an even better job at isolating cases, tracing contacts, enforcing quarantines and isolation. So there's a a compounding effect when things start to get out of control that you lose valuable tools. Catherine, something I've wondered, you and I are both in uh, the university uh, sector, a college dorm, or a set of college dorms are a lot like a cruise ship. People are engaged in intense social activity. They're close together. They sometimes end up in places they weren't planning uh, to end up. Everybody's trying to have a very good time. I worry 
that we are launching thousands of cruise ships in September. And people on cruise ships probably aren't that great at obeying the rules and doing what they should. And my experience with 19-year-olds suggests they're not so great at it either. Are you comfortable with the consequences of the degree of resumption of college that we're going to have? Certainly, there's a lot of variation school to school. I know both of our universities are taking very seriously the protection of our students, staff, faculty, communities, and that means much less dense population than you would ordinarily have. The real question, I think, is making sure that any outbreaks among the student body don't propagate to the staff, faculty, community, neighborhood, where there are going to be higher vulnerabilities in the population. People in that prime age, college age group are less vulnerable, although not invulnerable, as though as many of them may think, but they have much lower mortality and morbidity rates and making sure that any outbreaks there are caught early, traced, contained, will protect the surrounding communities. And that's what I would worry about the most in terms of things like mortality, although of course we're very worried about the health of everyone in our community. So I I think there's good cause to be nervous and to be doing an aggressive job of tracking, tracing, and isolating. My view for what it's worth is that College administrators can de-densify all they want, but 19 and 20-year-olds will be prone to densify themselves, um, whatever the rules, whatever the rules are, and the rules won't be followed. I think the question is whether you can make everybody test. Sorry, that's why the tracking and tracing is very important. Exactly. I think I I don't believe they're going to keep things safe by de-densifying. It may be that by testing everybody every three or four days um, and then isolating people who test positive, it may be that that will work to keep things under control. And I think that's a, a real possibility. And I think I hope that that's what they're banking on, really, rather than banking on the ability to maintain discipline about people visiting other students, people visiting students, visiting other students in their rooms and students not getting into crowded spaces to have parties or students reliably wearing masks, because I don't think any of that is very likely to happen. Larry, one of the things that struck me this week is that the HHS, Department of Health and Human Services, ordered the CDC not to be collecting the data from the hospitals anymore. That data has to go directly to HHS. And as a result, at least thus far, some websites have shut down. What does that tell us, even beyond the coronavirus, more generally about the government response to this pandemic? We're seeing the kind of state failure, basic breakdown of public functioning that scholars used to use in analyzing developing countries and explaining why they were poor and why they stayed poor and why they weren't able to push their economies forward and raise the life expectancy of their people. Analyses that people thought of as relevant to understanding failed governance in some of the poorest countries in the world now look relevant uh, in uh, the uh, United States. A government that is legitimate is central to a healthy society. And for a government to be perceived as legitimate, it has to be minimally competent in dealing with threats to its citizenry. 
and ours of late has not been. And shutting down the flow of information to an institution like the Center for Disease Control is of a piece with withdrawing from the WHO, of a piece with saying that masks are a terrible thing, of a piece with recommending that people inject themselves with uh, disinfectant. Uh, it is the stuff that one associates with the poorest and least functional societies in the world, not the world's uh, reigning uh, superpower. And more than any specific tactical uh, decision, this breakdown in the functioning of federal governance um, is, I think, what is most troubling to me as I think about the country's future. The president has been beyond bad, and many of the people he has appointed have been beyond bad. But this has been coming for a long time in the unwillingness of uh, our political leaders to adequately fund uh, basic functions of uh, government. Why should it be? that uh, we're only able to audit half as many tax returns of wealthy people as we were um, a decade ago. Why should it be that in the United States there are any bridges that uh, collapse? Why should it be that American children uh, lost IQ because they drank uh, lead water with uh, lead in it because that's what their government uh, told them uh, to do. I think that beyond the ideological debates about policy, central to the American project has to be reviving the basic competence of our government. So many thanks now to Catherine Baker. She is the Dean of the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. And Larry Summers of Harvard, he's our very special contributor for Wall Street Week. And that does it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.